This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day to plug into your community. On Radioactive, we shine a light on grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Later in the hour, I'm going to share an episode of The Uncomfortable Truth with you, the podcast hosted by Loki Mulholland and Lou Von Brown, to learn the answers to the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. An Emmy-winning filmmaker, Mulholland has agreed to share a recent episode in which he and Louvon share their reflections on the Ahmad Arbery trial outcome and how it compares to and is possible because of the Trayvon Martin and Emmett Till trials. There are events all week long in recognition of Dr. King's legacy. Born on January 15th, the day and the days around it have become a focus for service. If you go to krcl.org and click on rallies and resources, you'll find a list of events related to the Dr. King holiday. For instance, tomorrow online during the noon hour, the University of Utah is becoming the beloved community, a conversation about Alberta Henry and black life in Salt Lake City. And then Wednesday online during the noon hour, reframing the conversation 2045 towards a more diverse future. Why that date? Well, they say 2045 is set to bring a huge demographic shift for the United States. And by the time today's teenagers hit their 30s, there'll be more people of color than people who identify as white, more old people than children, and more people practicing Islam than Judaism. So they'll be talking about the effects of this demographic shift, which are already appearing, and how we as a country are preparing for a more diverse future of America. Are we preparing? That's part of Reframing the Conversation, Wednesday online at noon. Many events planned for Martin Luther King Week are pivoting to online, so check with the organizers, click on the links, and go and see if there's any update, if it was originally an in-person event, folks. And I do want to mention that the general session of the Utah Legislature officially really digs into its work starting tomorrow. And we'll be covering the people's business with different nonprofits, keeping an eye on issues related to the community, like the League of Women Voters of Utah, the American Civil Liberties Union of Utah, Heal Utah, all these organizations that you can also become part of or participate in their efforts to lobby our lawmakers for changes to laws or creation of laws that hopefully will make for, as Dr. King would say, a beloved community. Tune in weeknights at six to keep plugging into your community. Right now, they'll want to check in with the Utah Black Chamber and James Jackson III. Their Night in Harlem event is being pushed to April due to COVID, but there are plenty of things that they are getting ready to do, including publishing a book on Black life in Utah. So I Zoomed a conversation recently with James to find out more. Here's that conversation. We are doing some amazing things here. Um, even though the, the Black community may be small, but we're mighty. You know, I interviewed CEOs to you know, small business leaders to community leaders, religious leaders, emerging leaders, um, restaurant owners, performers, entertainers, and just getting the overall experience. So like, you know, I've been a native Utah and many of these individuals are not native Utah. Although in the book, we do talk about other Utah natives and, you know, things that they shared. But, you know, what I really gained from this is how to better connect 
with not only the black community here, but the black community outside of Utah, kind of change their perception of what Utah's diversity really looks like and what and how we're really thriving here. Um, and I just felt an honor to interview, I think it was 24 different people. And I sat down with them for an hour and grabbed content. Now, granted, not every bit of that interviews in this book we only able to get we only got 257 pages to read through we didn't want to make it a, a near bible length type book but um still great information in there and great people and there i could interview hundreds more well it sounds like a great resource for the broader business community when uh, they throw up their hands and say i don't know where the black folk are or how to connect with them this is a resource now absolutely and that's always been the main question you know, several years ago, when diversity, equity, inclusion started to become rampant here in Utah, I say rampant like it's a virus, not not rampant, <laughs> but it started gaining momentum here. Um, and people really understood the power and, you know, that diversity has dividends to their companies. You know, people are like, how do I recruit diversity? Where are they? Do you have diverse talent here in Utah? And, and I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again, you know, just like you can't, you can't, do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. You have to be intentional when it comes to diversity in Utah. And these individuals just kind of share how to plug in, how we connect and how we grow and what organizations, resources, barbershops, restaurants, what's all available here for us. So I, you know, everyone is familiar with the movie, The Green Book for good or ill and how that story was told in that film. Um, but this sounds like uh, a 2022 look at the community but a holistic look. And uh, are we past the Green Book days? I know the Green no, Book brought up I mean, a lot of lot of concerns for the community. Not necessarily. I mean, we're past the Green Book as far as, you know, trying to navigate around certain places that you're not welcomed in. But as far as just trying to navigate, period, we're still in that. Like we published last year, no, last year was 2021, 2020, these years are a blur for me. In 2020, we launched the website utahblackpages.com, which is Utah's green book, essentially, where you can go in and give a directory of the black businesses here in Utah, black organizations. And that's a growing directory. We're still working out a few kinks, but it's available. It's live. So church, churches, barbershops, restaurants, other small businesses, organizations are all on there. But we feel like we've only captured maybe a third of the black businesses on that website. So we're working on a strategy to make sure that we get more businesses on there. What's a website we can shout out right now if folks are listening to this and want it's, to get uh, it? UtahBlackPages.com. UtahBlackPages.com. We'll put it in the show notes. I was just pulling up the population data as we were talking. And for the most recent census data I can find, the black population in Utah is about 1.5%. So when we talk about the black community in Utah, the black business community in Utah, is it growing, the population in general, the business community? And what do you want folks to know here on Martin Luther King Day about the struggles, uh, about the accomplishments? When the Utah Black Chamber was founded in 2009, we was a 0.8% black population. And I had a pretty narrow vision thinking 0.8% will grow maybe to 100 members, we'll have a big footprint. And that's why I decided to take this on as a part-time hustle. Fast forward 13 years later, 
you know, here we are, we're a statewide organization with nearly 300 members. Um, we have St. George chapter to Northern Utah going on. Um, and we're a lot larger voice in the community than I ever dreamed that we imagined to a point to where we're actually on a search for a new CEO for the Utah Black Chamber because it needs the 100% focus. I have a full-time job with Zions Bank. We're also launching a foundation in the Black Success Center. So we need someone that can zone in on this chamber and continue that momentum. Um, but it's been an interesting growth path for the for just the Black community in general. Like you can kind of follow the Black Chamber's growth and that's kind of been the Black community's growth. Not necessarily population-wise where we've, we've experienced a little bit of a roller coaster. We went up to like 2% and now we're down to one and a half percent. But there's so many new black faces. What does that say? We have a revolving door of talent coming in and out, which is one of the main reasons why for that book, we wanted to see how can we help retain and grow the black community here? What resources can we share that are available so that companies know how to retain and grow black talent, how community can retain and grow black talent, how Utah can be more welcoming to the black community for those coming from outside of Utah and trying to change the narrative, change the perception. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we are. But I will say over the last couple of years, we've seen so many more businesses start up and become more visible. And I think it's a combination of more focus on diversity, more focus on, on Black businesses ever since the murder of George Floyd, um, but also just the rise of the Black population and finding opportunities. And these Black businesses are now becoming are starting up and becoming more visible as well. I know that there's a nation, it might even be international, you'll have to tell me if you know, uh, a Black Skiers Association that comes to Snowbird pretty regularly. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great way for folks to, you know, get connected with the state. But if we, we have this tech community that's going to grow, not to mention the Utah population expected double by 2060. Um, what is it the business needs to do to attract black talent and convince them that this state that is known for its um, white bread Mormon folks <laughs> to to kind of get people to break through and come here. I went to the uh, Utah Business Magazine put on economic summit last late last year and one of the panelists that had in, in the plenary session, one of the panelists stated, oh, everybody wants to come to Utah. And this is during a discussion about diversity and inclusion. How many and people were there, diverse on the panel? There was one woman, put it that way. Um, and I just shook my head. It's like, so what you have to do is be aware, right? And you got to expand your influence beyond your, and I'm going to say it, your good old boy club, right? Because, you know, you mentioned tech companies and this is where tech companies struggle. Right, is that they they need to learn how to expand outside their influence. They need to gain more diverse leaders. They need to reach out to more diverse leaders and get a better understanding of how to create a welcoming culture, how to be more inclusive. And diversity is not at the HR level. Their companies are now recognizing that it's at the C-suite level, chief diversity officers, um, the VP of diversity, they all need to report to the CEO because it's not about recruiting, it's about building a culture. And so diversity starts from the top down. And if you develop a welcoming culture, an inclusive culture, you will attract more individuals. One thing folks could do, whether they're looking to bring more folks to the state or to even learn more about or support the Utah Black Chamber is to attend 
the evening in Harlem coming up on February 4th. Talk to me about this annual event, especially given COVID. Is any pivots? Are we still meeting in person? We are pivoting. We're actually postponing. Um, we're coming, we're, we're waiting to hear back from the venue, um, but we're going to April. I think it's going to be a busy April here in Utah because a lot of <laughs> January and February events seem to be pushing to April because we figure that's when the peak is over and we can go back to where we were, you know, just a few months ago. But given this this uh, mean transformer called Omicron, it's like the worst Decepticon you can imagine, right? It's just <laughs> running rampant to where I saw an article earlier today. I just saw the headline where the state says, just assume if you're sick, you got it, stay home, right? Just because test you know to get testing right now is just hard um and you know it's almost impossible and i just feel so many people are becoming positive we didn't want to try to continue to promote this event um and feel like we're not recognizing what's going on we don't want to be the cause of an outbreak and we want this event to be fun um and so we're pushing it to april we already had it set up to be more safe where we're using the entire three floors, well, not the entire three floors of Leonardo, but we're using three floors of the Leonardo Museum. With the top floor, we'll have like casino, dancing and music. And the second floor is where our Black Museum is held. And we have a Black Wings exhibit there. And the bottom floor is more for socializing, networking, and some fun activities there. Featuring sign auction, um, we'll have and entertainment from music and spoken word and art, um, really celebrating the Harlem Renaissance and people coming in their Harlem Renaissance attire. So stay tuned for a new date um, and we'll be sure to announce that once we get confirmation from our venue. I try to hold on as long as I can bef before announcing it, but you know, everybody's pivoting right now. So we're just kind of waiting in line, waiting for these venues to get back to everybody. Um, so just, Right now we're just postponing, but we're still holding it. You can still go to our website and register, um, still purchase a table. Well, actually not even a table, we're purchasing tickets because there's no program. We want everybody just to come in there and have fun. We'll have signage regarding what the cause of Union Harmon is all about, but we want people just to have fun and just come on out. Well, as we get closer to whatever the date's going to be in April, let's have you back and we'll talk about the Harlem Renaissance um, and I think we should even start doing some regular interviews based on the book that's coming out on February 1st. How about that? Yeah, I would love that. I'd like to bring some of our contributors in here that, you know, that we interviewed and it's where they can dive deeper into, you know, what they shared within the book. Because like I said, I was, I was spoiled and fe in, enough and privileged enough to get all the, in all the inside scoops with folks like Representative Sandra Hollins and CEO Roy Banks and, Know, a lot of other CEOs and community leaders out there. So, you know, you only get like a little tidbit what's in that book, but still great information. But we'll continue going on, what you could say, a local tour for book signings and events. So we're working on that strategy now. What's the best website to direct people to for Evening in Harlem? You can just go to eveningharlem.com. That'll take you to the events page. It's on a new date for right now, but um, that date is not solidified. So when you see that date, don't get too excited. We're... Um, we just didn't want people, we, want, we wanted to encourage people to learn more about evening in Harlem and still register. James, thanks for all you do in the community. Look forward to having you back and getting some folks on with you to have those discussions that you have in this book that's coming out February 1st. Where can people Absolutely. find that book? That book will be available on Amazon. We have a digital black and white in color. And uh, it'll be available on February 1st. So as we wrap our conversation, this is going to air on Dr. King's Day. And I'm just curious, 
your views or thoughts on this day, especially with all the strides the Black Chamber has made here in Utah? Uh, for us, it's a it's a special day to recognize and reflect on the vision that MLK had and instilled it within all leaders going forward. Just and he left an incredible legacy for us to success from, and we just want to continue that momentum. Honestly, that's all we really want to do. And we've experienced some you know some hurdles over the last couple of years, and as well as some tremendous growth. The Utah Black Chamber has grown 400% within the last three years, given why we're on a search for a new CEO. Um, but also a lot of tough conversations, a lot of tough things that we're reading and still hearing that, you know, we there's still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, Davis you know, County our, comes to mind with that school district struggling with. Exactly. You know, and there's things like that to where, our goal overall is to work ourselves out of an organization, right? To be sure that the Black Chamber no longer needs to exist. But, you know, over the last couple of years, it's evident that our mission and purpose still serves a huge need here. And we'll just continue to work towards the vision that MLK had. Um, and we're also excited that his daughter will be here in April. And so we'll continue to um, celebrate that and work towards and, you know, letting her know that her, his voice is still strong within us um, with a sense of purpose. Dr. Bernice King will be here. Um, the Women Who Succeed um, is bringing her out. And it is, she will be here April 21st at Eccles Theater. Tickets will go on sale on, in February on, on Arctix. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes about that as well. James Jackson, founder of the Utah Black Chamber, thanks so much for your time. Happy Appreciate Dr. It. King Day. Yes, likewise, same to you. James Jackson III, founder of the Utah Black Chamber. Be sure to check tonight's show notes for a link to the events and the book that we talked about in our interview, not to mention the upcoming April 21st visit to Utah by Dr. Bernice King. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8. Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. John Florence starts your brand new day, weekday mornings at 6. The last two weeks of any show available on demand under the Programs tab of krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and when we come back, The Uncomfortable Truth with Loki Mulholland and Lou Von Brown. The Utah Black Artists Collective connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's U-B-L-A-C dot org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for tuning in Radioactive here on KRCL 90.9 Worldwide on krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and I'm going to share with you an episode of The Uncomfortable Truth, a great podcast from Loki Mulholland and the Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation. Loki's mom, Joan, now in her 80s, an original freedom writer. And before we get into the podcast episode, I wanted to catch up with the foundation and find out what has changed. And it's been a while since we've had Loki on the show, and he's since relocated his family from Utah back to Virginia to be closer to his mom. Here's that conversation. Hello, my name is Loki Mulholland of the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation, established, I don't know, a few years ago. And uh, 
I live out here in beautiful Virginia. Yeah, last we spoke to you, it was on the occasion of your mom's 80th birthday in September. And here we are, come full circle to another Martin Luther King Day. Again, thank you for last year. We did a whole series with Freedom Writers and shared that with radioactive listeners. We're going to share another episode of your Uncomfortable Truth podcast. But I wanted to catch up briefly and get some news about these micro scholarship grants that you're doing on behalf of the yeah. Trump Hour Mulholland Foundation. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we have this micro scholarship grant. So every week we're alternating between st- college students and teachers. And we got different categories. It's you know history teachers, it's college students who are studying history or whatever, you know, these sort of things. But every week we're giving away $250. Um, teachers, you know, I was actually talking to a teacher yesterday and they said, what is it for? I'm like, whatever you want it for. Teach, let's call it well-being. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it's just a way to, to help out. And, you know, our foundation does a lot of other scholarship programs and things, but this was one that we can, you know, do very quickly. Um, we're going to do it until the end of April and then more than likely pick it back up in the fall for the fall semester. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. People just go to our website, uh, jtmfoundation.org and uh, click on the link. So how's the, how's the foundation doing? It's ending racism through education. And oh. I also, a little birdie, you, told me that you're working on your own diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculum to offer folks. Yeah, well, the foundation's doing great. I mean, you know, we're, we, we moved, I moved out to Virginia. My wife and I, we moved out to Virginia after 22 years in Utah, back, moving back home. And uh, just, you know, a couple hours down the road from my mom, which is nice. And, and uh, so we're kind of, you know, just uh, getting reacclimated and, and, you know, new networking and so forth. And we're able to make a even greater impact out here because we're boots on the ground, if you will. So that's, that's, that's been nice. And uh, right now we're, we're working with uh, HBCUs in Virginia, establishing scholarship programs, each of those. We've got a, a new film, that short film that we just shot. We actually have a new sustaining model, uh, you know, a donation model. So instead of the uh, proverbial coffee mug, you can actually get access to all of our films for $10 a month as a sustaining, mo- uh, sustaining member. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's great. It helps the foundation do its work. And, you know, hey, you get a tax write-off and get to watch some great films. Yeah, just, um, just, uh, just like the community radio model. I love it. Congratulations. Yeah. How's yeah. your mom doing? Oh, she's doing great. She's doing great. Got a little scratchy voice. She says it's not COVID. Don't worry. She's fine. <laughs> all, all, all of us boys were her sons were calling up and we're like, hey, is everything all right, mom? She goes, oh my gosh, you're, you're calling too? I'm like, <laughs> you know, I was like, gee, mom, well, maybe, maybe it's just because we love you. She goes, well, that might be that. <laughs> <laughs> she's a solid uh, Virginia woman. So what are yeah. you all doing for Martin Luther King Day? We're actually a part of a four different programs. And so uh, one's with Montgomery County, Maryland, where um, we actually recorded it last night because we can't be there in person, but they're doing a screening of After Selma with a Q&A with my mom and I. After Selma is the one about voter suppression. Um, there's a group in, oh gosh, where are they? Texas or something, uh, where my mom, I, I interviewed her for them, shot all that, sent that to them so she can be part of their program. And then... Um, then we're meeting uh, MLK Day in the morning. We're meeting with a school district in uh, Grand Rapids. And, um, and so we, we've got a whole program with that school district. Of course, with, with COVID, everything's changed. It was originally going to be 1,700 uh, participants, but now it's just the core group of the administrative offices and principals and then sent out 
you know, Zoom via, you know, uh, to all the other teachers and such. Um, and then that evening, we have another program about an hour up the road at Ferris State University. So, and then we fly home the 18th and then the 20th, we turn around and fly to Memphis for another couple of uh, programs. So um, still so. busy, your mom's still uh, active. Yeah. And uh, I did want to point out that the film you did with Representative Sandra Hollins, The End of Slavery, has been accepted to another film festival. Yes, yes, thank you. It's uh, the Denton Black Film Festival, just, uh, I don't know, north of Dallas, I think it is. But uh, it's a great film festival. We've, uh, I think all of our films have been accepted there. And I just love going there. Of course, um, you know, everyone's being cautious now. So, you know, hopefully. But it's uh, switched to a virtual um, uh, festival. So that, that makes it great for a lot of people. Well, that, just like Sundance, just like Slamdance, the Denton yeah. Film Festival having to pivot. But now you can attend. You can go see the film. Um, or... If you choose, become a donor at the foundation, <laughs> and you can watch the film that way, plus five other films. <laughs> well, let's get to The Uncomfortable Truth, a podcast you started a while back as part of uh, the efforts to uh, end racism through education and uh, just love the conversations that you and Luvon have. In fact, you wrapped 2021 with a great episode that I wanted to share with everybody. Can you give us a little tease of what we're about to hear? Yeah, so that episode is, is about the Ahmaud Aubrey trial how it wrapped it was before the fun well the verdict even um and that how that compared to trayvon martin how trayvon martin led to ahmaud aubrey trial and how emmett till um you know plays into that as well and so it's just these connecting threads throughout history and the progress that has been made and the work that still needs to be done all right let's do this this is The Uncomfortable Truth on Radioactive. The Uncomfortable Truth podcast is sponsored by the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, dedicated to ending racism through education, while preserving, sharing, and continuing the legacy of civil rights icon, Joan Trumpower Mulholland. Support the foundation and programs like this podcast by becoming a monthly sustaining donor. Visit jtmfoundation.org to get started. That's JTM Foundation. Org. Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we answer the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. And I'm LaVon Brown. And it's, and time, it's time to get, get uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Three men were convicted of the lynching of Ahmaud Aubrey. His death in the subsequent trial had similar tones of Trayvon Martin in 2012 and Emmett Till in 1955. But the results were different. Today, we're going to explore just that. So, Levon, let's talk about this. Um, this this is this is based off of part of this is based off of this idea from this um, Politico article um, that that took place after the trial. Now, we haven't talked about the trial results at all, actually. Oh, um, yeah. And so, uh, what was your first reaction um, upon hearing about it? The result. Yeah. Uh, Ashley was, uh, we won one. Right. But, but I, I think the main thing was that the, the prosecuting attorney uh, really wanted to win this. Uh, whereas, <clears throat> certainly, <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me. And the way you're going, you just might need him. 
the the uh, the Till case and 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 was was a long time ago, and all they really wanted was to be have that over with, and uh, there was no way in the state of Mississippi that they were going to convict anybody. Uh, here we were in a place at a time where the prosecuting attorney said we need to win this, and that was the and I, that was the first thing I thought of. Mm. And I also thought of of, uh, the defendant's lawyer, you know, didn't want any black people in the uh, the courtroom and all of that. The pastors and so forth, yeah. Yeah. And basically what he did was his job. And what, what you know, what he played to, he played the race card and he didn't win. Right. But he was, he was, he went about it the same way that this black guy was in the wrong neighborhood and we're going to get pressers out of here and all this stuff. And he did that. He, he never backed down from it. He never apologized, even when they interviewed him after the trial. Right. He never backed down from that because he thought he was at a time in, in the history of America where that would win. Right. And, you know, I, you can't blame him for that because that's all we've been talking about. Right. Well, and, and it's interesting that you talk about that that argument that was being made, you playing the race card, if you will, um, because the the undertones were very similar to to Trayvon and and obviously to Emmett in respects right. that this you know the, the black menace. Here's this guy. He's in the he's in your neighborhood now. On, in the Trayvon trial, they actually brought a woman in to talk about how a black guy had robbed her house and she was upstairs and scared and hiding in the closet had nothing to do with, with Trayvon. Right. Except for the fact that they're both black and, and George Zimmer, what is Zimmerman? Is that his name? George Zimmerman? Yes. Um, You know, didn't know who Trayvon was and just saw them as a black man. So obviously if he's a black guy, then he must be trying to steal something. Right. Right. Same thing, obviously with the Maude Aubrey. Um, but, uh, with, and with Emmett, it's just the black beast rapist, you know, scenario that plays into all that. I, that's all it was. Right. And, and that was, what's interesting in, in, in the Till trial is that, um, Carolyn Bryant's testimony was the juror never, jury never heard it. Right. Um, and, but it played up to everything that needed to be said. Now they didn't have to hear it because her defense attorney had talked to the reporters and told them like a day or so before the trial, exactly what they were going to hear, even though she never actually said it in front of the jury. So the jury heard it without even having to be, you know, mm. on the, the very box that. to hear it. Yeah. Right. But every time they talked about, uh, about Emmett in, in the, uh, in the trial itself, the defense team, they, uh, they always referred to him in, in these, they, they never talked to him about him as being a child. Right. Right. They always, you know, alluded to this idea that he was, you know, he was big and hawking and, you know, obviously she, you know, and Carolyn was this petite little thing. I don't think that certainly not at that time uh, and before they ever thought of, of black children as children. No. If you, if, if you look back at it, I mean, we were picking cotton at his age. We were out in the fields and had been for years. So there was never a childhood. Yeah, I, it was interesting you say that. I was just with a gentleman. We were shooting a short documentary 
about this gentleman, um, George Sally. He's 92 years old, lives in Selma. And uh, every day he goes to the Edmund Pettus Bridge to pray for the man who beat him on Bloody Sunday. Now, mm. when he was eight years old, he was picking 100 pounds of cotton. At eight years old, got 50 cents. I mean, he could pick 100 pounds at, at, at eight years old. See, he said he wasn't. He said he wasn't that good at it. Right. He was also. That's a lot of cotton. Yeah, he was also behind. He also was working a plow with a mule. Yeah. At eight years old. At it, yeah. And he only had three years of school each, you know, three months of school each year. Right. Um, because, you know, got to work in the fields, you know, the sharecropping. Exactly. Family. Um, but yeah, so at a very young age, uh, he's, he's doing adult work. Yeah, see, we, Northerners considered Emmett Till a, a child, mm -hmm. uh, which he was. Right. But Southerners never did. Right. Because he wasn't. To them, a black child was not a child. Right. A black child was either working or he was a future worker. Mm -hmm. He was not a child. In right. the sense that we mean child. Right. So I'm not surprised at that. Yeah. And they couldn't afford, they wanted him dead. You know, yeah. let's, let's be serious about this. They wanted him dead. They killed him. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted it all that to be over. And they knew that they were going to get off. They knew that there was not going to be any convictions. They understood that because there was a black child that whistled at a white woman, supposedly, and he should be dead for that. Yeah. And the judge agreed with that and the whole, the courthouse agreed with that. Yeah. Well, and then in the closing arguments under Ahmaud Aubrey's case, the defense attorney, um, whatever her name is, um, I don't remember. Hogue, that uh, Laura Laura Hogue, I think is how you say her name. Yeah. So she, in this closing argument, turned was, uh, turning Ahmad Aubrey into it. She this is what she said: turning Ahmad Aubrey into a victim after the choices he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Aubrey to Satya Shores in khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. Right. So, again, now, it's just, you're painting, painting this, this, this image um, with a lot of racial undertones and so forth. Well, of course, the, the, the jury, nobody ever saw, first of all, I mean, I'm, nobody ever saw his toenails except the coroner. Right. That's it. Yeah. She had to bring that up. She had to come up with anything she could to dehumanize this person. Right. And that's what that was about. I mean, yeah. he's running. Who cares if he has on khaki? Somehow she made that sound like, well, that's the wrong thing to have on if you're running. First yeah. of all, because she couldn't just, she, she first yeah, Because if you're running, you'd be wearing running shorts, not khaki, so you were up to something. Yeah, you, up, you had to be. Right. They had to try anything they could to make him be seen as anything but human. Yeah. She tried that. Yeah. They all did. So, so, I mean, Trayvon, obviously, George Zimmerman was, was the stand your ground rules. Right. Uh, the Aubrey case, it was citizens arrest basically gone wrong. And now we had to defend ourselves from being attacked, which, which was interesting that they would even say that because when questioned on the stand, I'm going to pull up my notes here. Uh, the prosecutor uh, said to Travis McN uh, McMichaels, He's not reaching into his pocket. 
No, ma'am. And he never yelled at you guys. No, ma'am. Never threatened you at all. No, ma'am. Didn't brandish any weapons. Uh, no, ma'am. Didn't pull out any guns. No. Didn't pull out any knife. She keeps going. Never reached for anything, did he? Uh, no. He just ran. Yes, he was just running. You keep in mind that they started with, he had no business in the neighborhood. Right. Um, and they really believed that. That's why the guy was filming. Yeah. They, he, here's a black guy. What's he doing in our neighborhood? And, and they, stayed, they, they stuck to that. And that, they went from there. Right. But the lawyers knew better than that. I mean, but, the, in the 911 call that went out was, what's your emergency? And he responded, there's a black male running down the street. Right. 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 I mean, it's the fact that people were chasing him with guns, but. Right. But, you know, I mean, we've got to identify his race. And, it, and it's, and then, of course, just like you noted, um, you know, earlier with the fact that uh, the defense team was really playing up to every racial trope they could. Like, we don't want these black ministers here. Um, they're threatening. I mean, in, 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 in the Till trial, obviously, you know, there were black people in the, uh, what do you call that? Or the, uh, the uh, whatever, audience? In the audience, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, in the audience. I mean, so in the Emmett Till you know, case, you did have, um, you know, the black people that were in the audience, if you will, but they all had to stay in the back. And they had been shown to have no power. Right, right. Uh, which was not the case in the Aubrey case. Right. No. But, even, but even the in, in the Emmett Till case with the, um, the black reporters and so forth were given a small card table, pushed off to the side. And obviously the photographer gets the famous picture of um of his uncle you know pointing his finger identifying the man who killed his his nephew yeah the one thing that 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 i quite frankly i was hoping and and i mean other than the fact that he ended up that they convicted all these people they let one black guy on the jury mm -hmm. and i was so hoping that they would all come back with a guilty verdict so that this one guy was included as a juror, as opposed to the last black guy that we couldn't get rid of. Right. Or he was not the guy, there's always, I've said this before, you know, the black guy in the neighborhood that is on the racist side of the fence. Right. So he wouldn't be seen as that. And I really had that in the back of my mind that he didn't have the pressure to, on him to let these people go because he was the only black guy there. Right. I think he got included as a juror as opposed to a black juror. Right. Well, and to think of what's set up, even the opportunity, you know, the, the, the possibilities of a, a guilty verdict um, that Trayvon had to happen and to start to start moving things forward, Ferguson had to happen, you know, um, to help move things forward. And obviously, uh, George Floyd, right? So now you had this big up, right? This big upswell of, of of people who are who are protesting this. There's this dialogue taking place, right. and now, you know, in the face of that dialogue, you know, the 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 you know, prosecutors were definitely trying to. You know, trying, trying, trying to, I don't want to say take advantage of it for lack of a better term. That's what they were trying to do is to make sure that um, that, that greater awareness would actually play out in a courthouse. Absolutely. 
I, I think that was serious. But I think yeah. the other thing I was going to say was Zimmerman actually helped out because he became such a piece of, piece of work right. uh, that the Republicans don't even talk about him anymore. Yeah. And that was their guy. Yeah. So, you know, he sort of helped out. Yeah. You know, uh, by being a nut job. Yeah. Uh, and by getting into the trouble that he did, because this is the guy they held up to be, he was like a saint. Yeah. Uh, for, for shooting uh, Trayvon Martin. So, you know, it, it they weren't going to let that happen again. Yeah. Now, that being said, I would love for this to become, I'm not going to say this right, but let me just say, I would love for this to become common. Mm-hmm. That the guy's arrested, he's given a trial, as fair as trials are anyway, white or black, and that it is not an event, but it is a it is a a, a something that goes on that seeks justice. Right. And we may argue about whether it's justice, but we don't argue about whether or not they're making the black person pay for something. That's what I'd like to see. But I mean, to, to even to think about that when you say that you know to make it an event is that all how all these cameras are trained, the national news is trained on this one trial, yeah. which just goes to show how few of these cases actually end up, you know, in, in a trial, let alone you know the opportunity for for a guilty verdict. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just overwhelming. And, and how and, long did it take for them to to uh, to have the trial? It wasn't long, right away. Yeah, it was no, it wasn't right away. I think it was about a year. Buddy, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but you know, in, in, in addition to that, just thinking about uh, so Trayvon having to make that happen, right? Right. Um, roll back to Emmett Till, and for so many, that was the catalyst, the final straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. Like Fannie Lou Hamer famously said, "Just being sick and tired of being sick and tired." Right. Right. To push people. Uh, into the movement, right? To to really kind of motivate that, as Rosa Parks, you know, reportedly had said that you know she was thinking of Emmett when she was sitting on that bus, right? Um, and you know wasn't going to get up, right? It's and the so, timing because yeah, that had been happening all along, right? You know, and it's just that people were just, you know, I had enough. People, that's, that's, that's what they got to. It was like we got to do something because. Going along with the program isn't working. They're just killing people. And there was no need for what happened to Emmett Till. I mean, I, just, I still think his mother did a, 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 it was courageous on her part. Yeah. But I think she did a good thing by having an open coffin. Yeah. Uh, people got to see it. They had to be, they had to see what they had done. Yeah. And, and people said, wait a minute, you know, that's not right. Yeah. Now, a lot of other people got killed that mm-hmm. we didn't pay attention to. Still happen, yeah. Uh, but his mother did what she did, and, he, and the fact that he was a child and made to, he they, she made us look at him as a child. Yeah, you know, she was the mother that made somebody look at her child. I want the world to see what they did to my little boy. Yeah, we had not had that, right? Because we thought of ourselves the same way a lot of white people did. You know, well, they're going to do what they want anyway, so we're going to get killed. And she said, no, that's not going to happen. Mm. I'm going to make you pay attention. And I think that's that was important. Yeah. That was important. And I mean, it's it's in a sad way. I mean, there's there's progress. 
in the fact that those three men who lynched Ahmaud Aubrey, um, you know, actually got you know convicted. And so, I mean, imagine how 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 this guy had to feel that to take this. How in the right he had to feel that he was. No, it wasn't somebody standing on a street corner. Mm -hmm. It was an was somebody that was a part of killing the guy yeah. that taped it mm -hmm. and thought it was all right for them to yeah. tape it. Yeah. I mean, you think about that. I mean, you think, I mean, you have to believe you're going to get away with it, that you're justified. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're shooting the, the very evidence that's going to convict you. Right. But he, I bet I'll let you 10 to 1 that he had been told that all his life. Yeah. That he was better than. Right. That they don't belong in this neighborhood. Because otherwise, why would you take I me? Mean, you might tape it, but you don't give it to somebody. Right. So it, it tells you that you know, we still got a ways to go, but uh, is the next time they're going to tape it or and hide it or right. what's going to happen next time? Yeah. But we are seeing, obviously, like, like with George Floyd, you know, uh, that, that that evidence there that you can no longer ignore it make excuses for it he was trying to you know like jim lee jackson and right before the summer montgomery the march in california I, I i would have sworn that was a conviction right that happened before what was his name i forget his name but that they killed the cops killed in uh california mm -hmm. and and somebody took a picture of that right. it was a video right and it's like it was almost, almost like it didn't happen yeah so we've we've made strides but Jesus, look at the time right. uh, that it took for that to happen. How many more lives do we need to be spent? You know, it makes it almost, it makes it hard for you to say, uh, for one to say, not you, but one to say uh, when a guy has actually done something wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you're reluctant to say that. You know it, but you're reluctant to say it because of this. Right. And how many people believe that, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey really wasn't, wasn't the victim, that he yeah. got what he deserved, yeah. I, despite the yeah. evidence? Yeah. What yeah. was he doing in that neighborhood? Right. All, you know, That's a question that should never come up. Right. If you, didn't, if you didn't do anything wrong, why'd you run? You know, there's that other, you know, that, argument that's always made. And I'll let you tend to one that's going around, too. Yeah. But he was, he was reaching for my gun. That's, you know. Trayvon was reaching for the gun. Like I said, you know, I was saying earlier, Jim Lee Jackson, you know, that was, he was reaching, you know, the, the excuse was he was reaching for my gun. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's the same argument used over and over and over again, because you think you're going to get away with it. And this, right. time, it didn't right. work. So I, I think the people that the, the prosecutor in this, in, in, in Aubrey's case was, 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 gives hope. Yeah. Nothing else. Right. Um, we'll see. We'll I mean, now we just got to get get people to stop killing black people just for being black. Yes. Yes. I mean, and that's yeah. what hopefully that's what hopefully these prosecutions and you know, these convictions do is go. Wait a second, we can't get away with this anymore. Right. Even if, if we get that, we we that's half the battle. Right. That's half the battle. Yeah. Uh, and now this guy knows the one that did the taping. I forget his name. But he knows he can't get away with that. Mm -hmm. He may stop and think that, well, well that's wrong. What was wrong with that? 
know, I don't know if he will or won't. He just may figure next time I'll hide it. Right. But he may also think that uh, that was wrong. Yeah. These 12 people told me I was wrong. But, you know, those, those sort of people can't, re, you know, they just can't resist bragging about it. Yeah. They got that, they're sitting there in their back pocket just waiting to show somebody. Well, they're protecting their own. Right. That's what they're doing. And their, their question is, well, how could you blame me for that? Right. I'm the one that's fighting. Yeah. I mean, these, these supposedly houses were broken into in that neighborhood. And here was this black guy and he was, you know, snooping around, whatever. And yeah, it must have been him. Must be him, yeah. yeah. So we're just defend, we're just we're just protecting our neighborhood, protecting our white women, you know. Yeah. That's what they're doing, right? Find your justification. That episode, yeah. I tell you, the, the there's so much that's going on there. For the first time, not for the first time, but it really makes you afraid. Makes me that way, and I I have lived my life in this country, and I've never been afraid. Mm-hmm. You don't know who you're dealing with. Right. There's a guy right down the street from me that hangs out his Trump sign. Right. Now, that's all right. I figured, okay, hangs out his Trump sign. I don't like Trump. He does. So we don't have to, I don't have to talk to him. And I'm very glad, I'm thankful that he put that sign out there so right. I know where but he lives. <laughs> the other night, the guy's shooting a gun at something. In your neighborhood? Not only in the neighborhood. In the backyards. I mean, those backyards go up to the uh, to the metro line. He was. I'm telling you, my wife heard it. I didn't hear the gun. She heard the gun. The girl that lives next door has one of those ring things. Mm-hmm. She caught him on the tape. Dang. In the middle of a of a of a, of a neighborhood. Yeah, suburban. He's shooting the gun. Now it's illegal. Right. Well, of course. But, but you know what the what the answer is. It's like, well, should I tell it? Should I tell the police or not? Mm. Because I can't do it anonymously. Right. So now, now I don't know what you know. So somebody tells about this guy shooting off a gun, then he gives my name, and I'm dead. Right. So it's, it's like I never had to think about that before. You know, it's like, and I think that's. That's what that's what's got to get fixed. Right. We all agree that the guy shooting off a gun in the middle of a neighborhood is wrong. Right. I don't care about his politics. Right. You know, know, you can you can claim your Second Amendment rights, but that's not the right to fire it off in the neighborhood. Right. Right. So I guess he felt he was protecting the neighborhood. Well, maybe he saw, you know, maybe his argument will be that he saw a black guy, you know, in the he thought he saw a black guy in his backyard. Well. Unfortunately, he's, he'd be in a lot of trouble because we had a fairly mixed neighborhood. So right. we have to pick out the, the black guys. Right. Well, I appreciate it, LeVon. Thank you, Loki. Thank you. We're doing it. All righty. Loki Mulholland and Luvon Brown, hosts of The Uncomfortable Truth. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the podcast from the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation. Loki said he and his mom have big plans for this year as they keep pursuing their mission of ending racism through education. Here's more of my recent conversation with Loki. What is the plan for the podcast in 2022? You know, that's we, we've been talking about that. There's a couple of options that we're looking at. There's a great story that we're 
we've been talking about telling, which is actually this family, um, this gentleman who kind of had the same journey that I had um, in respects to finding family and so forth and genealogy research. And, and, but he actually found the family that his family enslaved. Wow. And so, and they all want to help kind of share that journey of what took place. Um, so we're, we, we've been talking with them about that. And then uh, I have this massive project I've been wanting to do with my mom's story. So there's the documentary, An Ordinary Hero, but there's so much more that isn't told in the film, but we have all the interview. We have like 20 plus hours of interview content um, from my mom to Hank Thomas to, you know, the, the Ladner sisters and, and so forth. So there's a lot more that can be woven in to the fabric of all that. Um, so yeah, we, we have, just trying to figure out what that looks like. And, but in addition to that, we also have got, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, unfortunately there will be something that comes up and, you know, we want to be topical on that as well and be able to jump on those and have those type of conversations at the same time. Are you feeling that it's the work is making a difference here as we contemplate our country's struggles that are not over, uh, that seem ever enduring when it comes to eliminating racism? Um, you know, we had that conversation just the other night and, uh, you know, the answer is, the answer is yes, because progress is progress. And, and like my mom has said, you know, I can't do everything, but I can do something because doing nothing is not an option. Um, in Mississippi, I, I received an email just yesterday from a teacher who, uh, fourth grade teacher, and she says, you know, we were reading uh, about your mom in Studies Weekly, which is a Utah-based education company. And she says, you know, uh, the kids were just so enamored with this story. We took her quotes about making a difference and putting it up on the wall. And they, kids started researching her and couldn't believe that this was, you know, that here was this lady that was in Mississippi doing this. And so I, you know, called her up and said, hey, well, how would you kids like to actually meet her? They're like, what, what, are you kidding me? I said, well, yeah, hey, look, I'm gonna be with my mom on Friday, right? Uh, let's, just, let's just do a quick assembly on Zoom wonderful that we have the technology to do that. I said, just don't tell them, right? And let's surprise them, but prep them and this, just say, hey, if you, if, if you, let's pretend you're a reporter, what sort of questions would you ask Joan, right? Make it a lesson and then we'll pop on. And then they got to start asking the questions. She goes, oh my gosh, this is like the highlight of my career. Um, and so it is making a difference. Um, and the podcast, people are listening, you know, people want to know and, but uh, if we don't do anything, then nothing's going to change. It also sounds like a matter of perspective. And your mom, um, for listeners who are just hearing this for the first time, she grew up in the same neighborhood as my dad did back in, in Virginia. And so long lives for both of them. And they can look back and see over their 80 plus years, the progress has been made, the steps back, the backsliding that has happened as well. Sure. And so it sounds like you turn to your mom for... Um, that uh, confirmation that progress is being made. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's let's be real. I mean, in Arlington, Virginia, where our parents grew up, um, at that time when they were kids, there were Klan posters, posters from the Ku Klux Klan on the telephone poles, and now it's it's some of the most uh, diverse communities in the country are there in Arlington, Virginia. Um, that's progress. 
Loki, what is the website for the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation so folks can catch up, maybe become a sustainer even? Hey, that'd be great. We appreciate it. This, so the website is JTM, Joan Trump Power Mulholland, jtmfoundation.org. Loki Mulholland. Find links to the foundation and the podcast, as well as our earlier guest this hour, James Jackson, the third founder of the Utah Black Chamber. They've got that book, Black Utah, coming out on February 1st. Evening in Harlem moved to April due to COVID. Dr. Bernice King coming in April. Details in tonight's show notes at krcl.org. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, it's posted there. Please share it and tag us up. And thank you for listening and making Listener's Community Radio of Utah possible. I'm Laura Jones, and that's it for Radioactive. As we plug you into the community, please consider what you can do to make Dr. King's beloved community a reality in your neighborhood. Have a great night.